0: Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. On today's program, we're going to hear about new federal safety guidelines for natural gas pipelines, and the downturn in production means less money for the state. The AmeriCorps VISTA anti-poverty program helps schools in the area here in central Pennsylvania. But up front, the central Pennsylvania blood bank is experiencing a severe emergency blood shortage. Joining us on the program is Jay Weimer, who is a spokesman for the central Pennsylvania blood bank. Mr. Weimer, welcome to the program. Hi, good morning, Scott. All right. When you say it, I'm taking directly from your urgent news release, a severe emergency blood shortage. What does that mean?
1: Um, what it means is that, uh, we have certain levels, uh, safe levels, uh, blood inventories for the region and that transfusions has, have remained at a high level while, uh, donor blood donations have declined significantly throughout the year and especially over the past two months.
0: Do we know why?
1: Um, we we don't have an exact reason uh we are doing a lot of the same things to inform the public um uh, that that we need help we're just seeing less folks coming out uh to their their business blood drive or their uh uh, blood drive at their place of worship or at their their um, community club we've also seen um really over the last nine months about 60 blood drives that used to go um not go again this year. And, um, and and so those are a lot of the factors. The bottom line really is is that we're seeing less donors coming through our doors and um, having less, less organizations holding blood drives.
0: Now we get a lot of uh, your releases and hear from uh, the Central Pennsylvania Blood Bank fairly often when there is news. This is unusual, isn't it, that uh, you're reaching out to the public and saying, we're in this situation.
1: This is Scott. We actually haven't reached out um, to to WITS uh, since about 2011 um, when we had a shortage uh, at that time. So this is unique. Uh, we really try not to come to you folks to ask for help to get the word out. Um, but unfortunately we're at a point right now where um, we're concerned of, about um, uh, making sure there's enough blood for the region.
0: Is there potential for this to be a life-or-death situation, or is that overstating it?
1: Scott, what, what we will do is we will go to other blood centers uh, across the United States if we um, don't have the unit of blood or the unit of plasma or, or the unit of platelets that's needed for a patient, and we will um, get those units from elsewhere in the country. Um, and, and that, that always occurs. All blood centers um, are partnering with each other, um, but we can only do that so many times.
0: Okay, you mentioned the plasma and platelets. Yes. This is something that uh, the blood donor doesn't have to be concerned with. All they know is that they're donating blood, right? But tell us a little bit about plasma and, and platelets.
1: Sure, every time that we donate blood, uh, our blood is separated into the red cell, uh, which is used for folks with um, who are uh, doing a transplant uh, and uh, also for trauma patients. Um, the second part of our blood is our plasma, which is used for uh, burn victims and to help people come out of shock. And platelets are used uh, very often for folks who are battling with cancer. Uh, the transfusion of platelets helps them Uh, to um, work with the chemotherapy and beat the
0: cancer. How many uh, pints of blood do uh, Central Pennsylvania hospitals use each day?
1: Um, It it really depends. To, um, to, To basically make an average is we would say about 250 per day is what we need to be collecting. Um, and and that can certainly change. One one patient uh, can use eight pints of blood, um, but we've had some situations where uh, one patient had used over a hundred uh, uh, pints of of blood, red cells, uh, plasma over a three or four day period.
0: Mm. Uh, all right. So the big question. Jay, is uh, many people are hearing this and saying, well, okay, well, I, want, I want to donate. How can they do that?
1: Um, the, the easiest way is to give us a call or, or, or come to our website. Um, our, our phone number is 1-800-771-0059. That's 800-771-0059. And our website is cpbb.org. That's C as in central, P as in Pennsylvania, B as in blood, B as in bank.org.
0: Now, you have, uh, I I know on the release you listed, 11 uh, community partners that that, that you have. Uh, We'll put those on our website. Can someone who wants to donate go to one of these locations unannounced, or should they make an appointment?
1: Uh, No, they can certainly just come right in.
0: Okay, so if you are going to, uh, say, the Lebanon VA Medical Center, Good Samaritan Hospital in Lebanon, Pinnacle Health, Harrisburg, Wellspan Health in York, Gettysburg Hospital, Carlisle Regional Medical Center, Ephrata, these are just a few of them. If you're going to any of those, that you just walk in the front door, tell the, the, the person that is the front desk that you're there to donate blood and you'll be directed? Well, what we
1: would like for them to do and, and what I can do to get over to you, Scott, is a listing of all of our donor centers um, and some of the blood drives coming up in the next week. Okay.
0: Um, if you would send that to me, Jay, yes, I'd sir. appreciate it. Just send it to my email address. Okay. And, um We'll put it on our website as well as they can get it, I'm sure, on your website, uh, cpbb.org. Uh, Jay Weimer is with the Central Pennsylvania Blood Bank and uh, a call to action right now, if you will uh, the need for the urgent need for blood donations. And uh, I'm off Monday, so I'm, I'm going to make the effort to, to get out and uh, donate some blood as oh, well. Wow, and I hope God. everybody else will. Uh, Jay Weimer, thank you very much for being with us today.
1: Thank you so much,
0: Scott. Your You're You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Following a series of explosions and accidents, the federal government announced recently that it would expand safety rules for natural gas pipelines. And on the state level, Pennsylvania is facing a nearly $3 million deficit in the fund that supports the oversight of oil and gas wells. WITF State Impact Pennsylvania reporter Marie Cusick covers the natural gas industry and joins us in the studio with more. Marie, welcome to the program. Hi, Scott. All right, we hear a lot about new pipelines, but the U.S. has already uh, laid about the 2.5 million miles of natural gas pipelines in the ground. Why are the regulations being updated now?
2: Well, the simple answer to this is the shale gas boom. This is what I cover at State Impact Pennsylvania. Um, as many people know, the Marcellus Shale has been a big, big game changer in our energy landscape So we are just using a lot more natural gas and electric power generation. There is too much of it. There's a glut. So prices have dropped. There's a push to export it. And so there are more of these pipeline projects going into people's backyards, new projects. So there are more concerns about safety.
0: Is there any kind of precedent, any kind of uh, uh, incidents that we've seen across the country that would lead to this uh, to this safety regulation change?
2: Yeah. Well, the proposals are from the. Pipeline and the Hazardous Material Safety Administration, it's known as PHMSA, and they're part of the Federal Department of Energy, so they oversee pipeline safety. And yes, they did cite a, a big accident in 2010. It happened in San Bruno, California, and it was a big explosion that killed eight people.
0: Pennsylvania, obviously one of the nation's leaders in production of natural gas, even though, as you mentioned, uh, natural gas production is way down compared to just a few years ago. How would Pennsylvania be impacted by these new rules?
2: Well, one of the biggest changes is that there are kind of two big changes. There are going to be oversight of older pipelines that were built before the 1970s that were exempt from some of these safety rules. And then really this also brings regulation to thousands of miles of gathering lines. Uh, so just to explain, there are kind of three different types of pipelines that we're talking about. The gathering lines bring the gas from the wells, which are often out in rural areas, to the transmission lines. You could think of the transmission lines as sort of the highway system, moving it around. And then the distribution lines go take it into your home or business. So you have gathering, transmission, and distribution. So really, a lot of these gathering lines were not regulated. Um, And we even, uh, my colleague Susan Phillips at WHYY even reported on how um, you know, a worker died in, in Armstrong County after he, you know, the company did everything right. They called PA1 call 811 before they were digging. and um, PA1 PA
0: call, just to explain what that is. Yeah,
2: call before you dig right, uh, right. to check if there is perhaps a pipeline there. Um, so that's, you know, an important safety feature. But here they did everything right. And um, just because of the lack of regulation around some of these gathering lines, there's just really no rules and no oversight about Uh, where they are. Uh, So, yeah, this will bring a lot more regulation to gathering lines.
0: What can you tell me about the progress being made with the construction of pipelines in Pennsylvania?
2: Yeah, well, I don't know if I'd say it's moving slowly. It's actually, um, you know, moving rapidly. Although what happened was I don't think the industry was prepared for the amount of gas that they'd get. Uh, So they didn't realize the infrastructure wasn't quite caught up to where uh, they thought it needed to be. Um, So, yeah, certainly you have a lot of new projects and people protesting them. Because even though, as you mentioned, there are millions of miles of pipeline already in the ground, a lot of them were laid down a long time ago, and they're kind of out of sight and out of mind. So when a company comes knocking on your door saying, we're going to, you know, dig up your backyard for a new pipeline uh, this has led a lot of people to be really concerned about what it will do to their property values, um, you know, environmental safety issues, and that's one of the reasons federal regulators are tightening the rules. Uh,
0: now, we have seen a lot of pushback uh, from landowners upset about the pipelines. There was a massive quilt in Lancaster County and a young woman who climbed up in a tree in Huntington County this week. Uh, will this affect those projects at all?
2: No, because if you learn this has been, you know, a learning experience for a lot of people, including me, pipelines are really governed by an alphabet soup of various agencies. So you often hear about FERC, which is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. They decide whether um, interstate pipelines that go Across state lines, whether they get built or not, and here w- with the safety rules and the safety regulation falls under the Department of Transportation and PHMSA. Um So that's what we're talking about here. So you have one agency, FERC, that approves the pipelines, and another that regulates safety. And then here within Pennsylvania, you got the Public Utility Commission. They're involved. Um, DEP, the Department of Environmental Protection, they kind of have a small role when the pipelines cross waterways. So. No, really, PHMSA safety rules won't have an impact on whether these projects move forward um, because that's handled by other agencies.
0: With that many agencies that you just listed, it's almost a wonder anything ever gets done.
2: (laughs) Well, interestingly, too, um, I'm talking about interstate pipelines that cross state lines. And when it comes to intrastate pipelines that don't leave the state boundaries, Pennsylvania is actually one of, I believe, just two states that doesn't even have a single agency to handle pipelines. So that's become part of the problem here. As the network has expanded, we don't really have a single place where people can go for information, um, you know, and resources. And it's just a lot of different agencies. In fact, that's one of the reasons why when he was elected, Governor Tom Wolf convened this Pipeline Infrastructure Task Force, which was headed by uh, the DEP Secretary John Quigley. And it was a, a group, a kind of a giant uh, committee of people to talk about what Pennsylvania needed in terms of um, pipeline, you know, changes to regulations or even just a map. That's one of the things they're lacking is a really good map to show where the existing pipelines are and the proposed pipelines.
0: One of the real controversial issues that we face not here and just here in Pennsylvania, but all over the country. Involves eminent domain where a government agency can come in and actually take land now they compensate uh, the landowner But uh, if it you know eminent domain land uh, laws, I should say uh, Usually are restricted to if it's in the public interest. What about the use of eminent domain for some of these pipelines?
2: Yeah, that's been a really hot topic and that is actually why that young woman Climbed up this tree in Huntingdon County this week. As she was trying to stop. Some tree felling on her property um, for the Mariner East pipeline, uh, which is a liquids pipeline that's running across the state. So yeah, I think a lot of people weren't aware that a private company um, can use eminent domain. Uh, they often think of it as the power of the government. So you might think of, okay, well they're building a highway or something, um, you know, for the greater good that we could all drive on. And and the argument has been, well these pipelines are for the greater good, and they can use eminent domain, and that has surprised people. So what's interesting too about ...about the big pushback and opposition and controversy that we're seeing is it's really united people on the left. You might you might expect, you know, sort of environmental groups and people on the left to be concerned about climate change or other issues with pollution. But really on the right as well, there are a lot of people who are very upset about their personal property rights. And um, they're not happy at all about the use of the eminent domain. And, you know, the companies, um, if you talk to the pipeline companies, they say, look... We try to work with people and negotiate with them, and eminent domain is really a last resort.
0: Well, government says that, too, and I I think you're right that uh, many people probably don't realize that a private company can uh, use eminent domain. You also reported this week that uh, Pennsylvania is facing a $2.9 million deficit in the fund that supports its oversight of oil and gas wills. What's going on there?
2: So that's a projection from Governor Tom Wolf's um, budget office. Basically, it's the fund that is supported by the regulated community, which is the drillers, um, which pay for you know people at the State Department of Environmental Protection to do things like inspections and reviewing permits. And it's basically just the overall slowdown in drilling. They're bringing in a lot less money because a lot fewer companies are seeking to drill. So... They're projecting, yeah, for the next fiscal year, they expect it to be almost $3 million in this fund. And the following fiscal year, $9.8 million deficit.
0: Mm, that's a lot of money. What about inspections and uh, permit reviews? I understand that uh, there, are, there are some vacancies. And if we are not bringing in the money that uh, is projected, what about those vacancies?
2: Yeah, this came up a few weeks ago at the DEP's budget hearing. Um the Wolf administration kind of quietly uh, placed temporary uh, limits on all state agencies filling vacancies. So it wasn't like the hiring freeze they did last fall during the budget impasse. It was more like, okay, you have 100 people, 100 jobs that are vacant. You just don't fill any of them right now. So um, this became kind of a a controversial point during uh, one of the DEP's budget hearings, because um, you know some of the Republicans on the committee were like, "Hey, these 24 vacancies in your oil and gas program are funded exclusively by permit and fees paid by the regulated community, by drillers. So why don't you fill them?" Um, but I so I followed up and I asked, and they said they really just can't fill these jobs—the 24 oil and gas inspector jobs that they can't fill because. This fund is just headed into projected to be in deficit because of the slowdown.
0: Now, 24 vacancies doesn't sound like a lot, is it? I mean, in comparison to the number of employees, the number of uh, inspectors out there?
2: No, I don't think it's a lot, but it's sort of, you know, I think what it the question it raises is that this industry, as anyone knows, it booms and it busts. So what do you do when it busts, especially if you fund this program off of exclusively fees paid by drillers? When it busts, can you still do what you need to do? And, you know, the question has come up again if you're – I know Governor Wolf has said he wants to use uh, a gas severance tax to fund public education – uh, school districts had a really rough time of it this past year with the budget impasse, getting the money they needed. So, if you're gonna rely on the oil and gas industry to um, fund public education, what kind of a foundation is that when it's you know it's up, it's down, it's high, it's low?
0: Well, is there a relationship with pipelines? I mean, uh, we know that the the bust right now is attributed to some of the things that you mentioned earlier, the low prices, uh, you know, that we have in overabundance right now. But if these pipelines were constructed and there were foreign markets or they could move to other states, would that uh, alleviate the bust?
2: Well, that's what the industry says. They said, look, we we need to move this stuff. There are people who want it, both in the United States and elsewhere. And, in fact, they already are exporting um, some natural gas liquids out of Philadelphia. Uh, Those shipments just went out recently. So, absolutely, the pipeline argument is that we need to move this product both to Pennsylvanians and to other Americans and to people overseas.
0: Marie Kusick is WITF State Impact Pennsylvania reporter. Uh, Marie, thank you very much for being with us today.
2: It's my pleasure.
0: State Impact Pennsylvania is a collaboration between WITF and WHYY in Philadelphia to cover the Commonwealth's energy economy. To learn more, visit WITF.org and click on State Impact Pennsylvania. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF. You're home for NPR News and all things regional, I'm Scott Lamar. The domestic equivalent of the Peace Corps introduced by President John F. Kennedy in the 1960s is AmeriCorps VISTA, Volunteers in Service to America, which was designed to fight poverty. Today it does much more, including fostering partnerships between schools, national service programs, and community-based organizations to support low-performing schools. Max Finberg is the director of AmeriCorps VISTA, and he's in Harrisburg today. Mr. Finberg, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Scott. I appreciate it, and I'm excited to be with you. Uh, Tell me about AmeriCorps VISTA.
3: Your introduction was spot on. AmeriCorps Vista just celebrated its 50th anniversary as the domestic Peace Corps founded by President Johnson. We were an idea that President Kennedy had to create a very similar opportunity for service that uh, Americans could do here in our country, similar to the Peace Corps. And we have... Spent those 50 years helping to build the capacity of low-income communities, helping to alleviate poverty, helping to target a number of different things about the effects of poverty that human capacity can help address. So rather than a specific program or, or even just money, we get to put committed folks into communities where they can make a difference.
0: Well, what does that mean specifically? Because, uh, as you say, I mean, just here in Pennsylvania, you have uh, 15,000, more than 15,000 people working at uh, 2,500 locations. But what does that mean as far as hands and feet on the ground?
3: That's a great question, and one I'm excited to be here in Harrisburg to to witness. So uh, a little later this morning, we'll join one of those AmeriCorps VISTAs going down to Downey Elementary School, where he has worked with uh, Pennsylvania Campus Compact through Messiah College, and uh, is focused on helping to connect community resources to benefit the students and parents, not just of Downey, but of other schools here in Harrisburg, where the teachers don't have time for that. They're busy teaching. and. The administrators, the principal's been a huge supporter, but he or she doesn't have time for that. So what a VISTA can do and is doing here in this city as well as around the country is connecting those dots, is expanding the reach of a school or an organization or a city hall that wouldn't happen otherwise. And that's the role that VISTAs play. And it's exciting to see... Uh, whether that's in education or in digital literacy. We have VISTAs who started credit unions or food banks that still continue to this day. And so it's, it's exciting for me and my role to to get out of D.C. and see where VISTAs are really making a difference around the country.
0: Now, something you described just a, a minute ago, Uh, Where teachers, administrators don't have a lot of time besides working in the classroom. And when you're talking about connecting communities, I mean, that's something that we hear very often today, that we want to connect the community. Uh, And you kind of described or touched on some of these things, but give me an example of how at Downey Elementary you will be connecting the community, the students with the community and helping the parents.
3: So what's What's terrific in putting meat on the bones of what partnership means is uh, Avista, working with Messiah College, with the United Way here, has brought together different resources of what's going to help those students and those parents connect with the, the larger community. That could be uh, donation of computers or tablets could be in recruiting other volunteers. So that's, that's where VISTAs have a unique role in trying to reach out to recruit others who might be able to provide after-school tutoring or enrichment sessions. And so instead of just one person doing that role, uh, a VISTA is a force multiplier in being able to recruit others And manage those volunteers make sure that they're trained and have what they need and all of a sudden instead of just a handful of students benefiting you have dozens or hundreds and that's what we see and that's what I'm looking forward to seeing uh, a little later today
0: you mentioned parents often when we talk about the challenges facing students especially in uh, struggling schools uh, we hear about uh, the roles of the role of parents and uh, how much they can, I don't know, pay attention, work with their kids, do those kind of things. You also talked about the the, the little amount of time that teachers and administrators have. A, parent, a lot of parents have that same uh, issue that uh, they're working, maybe two jobs, that they often don't pay as, as much attention to their children's education as they would like. So... How do you gap that bridge between parents and education?
3: One of the things that is is definitely the place to start is that all parents, almost all parents, care about their kids and want what's best for them and want, want a good education. And so you identified some of the, the hurdles that low-income parents have when they're working two or three jobs or, don't have easy or reliable transportation, or might be working a night shift. So one of the things that uh, a VISTA can and does do, as well as these community partnerships, in trying to expand the ways in which parents can participate and engage, is making sure that the, the timing of a PTA meeting or, or outreach fits a little better could be that you have opportunities later in the evenings or even on the weekends that allow parents to, even with those busy schedules and those other demands, connect and engage in in their kids' education. And what that allows for is a, a demonstration of the concern and care in a way that, that fits. So finding creative ways of Communicating and engaging with parents is one of the roles that uh, we can and do play to make sure that 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 happens.
0: Now you, maybe not you personally, although I'm sure you have, but uh, AmeriCorps VISTA uh, in working with schools across the country, you've seen a lot of different situations. I know this is a broad question, but what are some of the challenges facing schools, especially struggling schools?
3: The ramifications of poverty have a number of different uh, uh, illustrations or, or manifestations, I guess. And education is one of them, where uh, the resources in a lower-income school, in a lower-income neighborhood, are clearly different than those across the river or in a different neighborhood or suburb. And so we see that both in the the location and the physical plant of schools, but also in terms of some of those enrichment opportunities. Uh, so I was just talking with uh, some folks working in Indian country on Native American reservations, where so few of them have access to summer learning opportunities. And the, the difficulty there of coming back to school and starting off lower at a lower reading level than you ended the school year before because you weren't engaged in anything over the summer. So we see that very clearly. We see a lack of exposure on some of the technology and the digital learning space. So we're entering in the conversations with private sector companies and others to try and offer more of those opportunities so that low income kids aren't as disadvantaged as they continue down the school pipeline whether it was being able to read at grade level in the 3rd grade which is one of the good indicators of of future progress or have access to opportunities uh, around STEM or again digital learning in the later grades and then are ready for college or career is something that we see in a variety of different ways and are working to address
0: what about special needs uh, students Uh, we know that uh, the percentages of uh, children who uh, are in need of special education in the lower um, in the lower income areas uh, that the percentages are a little bit higher Uh, do you have anything specifically uh, in your organization to deal with those special needs children
3: it depends on our our community host. Vista is is not a top down uh, type of organization, but we look for hosts in the community. And so, our my colleague here in Pennsylvania is is looking for nonprofit organizations or public agencies that could host vistas. And some of them, in fact, do work with. Students and others with disabilities could be on job readiness, could be on any number of things. But that really depends on the, the community host and sponsor. And so I don't know how broad our portfolio is in, in that space around the country.
0: Mm-hmm. So Messiah College is your host here in Harrisburg.
3: They are. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a great illustration of partnership, partnership. <clears throat> So Messiah College is hosting a Vista thanks to the State Association of Colleges called Pennsylvania Campus Compact, and it's Messiah's relationship both with the United Way here in the Capital Region, uh, with the with the schools, and with other institutions of higher education and other groups here in the in the community that is really leading to. A VERY SUCCESSFUL PARTNERSHIP. SO I'M LOOKING FORWARD TO MEETING MAYOR Poppenfuss, uh, WHO IS JOINING US AS WELL AS SECRETARY OF EDUCATION HERE IN PENNSYLVANIA, PEDRO RIVERA, WHO WILL BE JOINING US AS WELL.
0: You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest during this portion of the program is Max Finberg. He's the director of AmeriCorps Vista, and he's in Harrisburg today. Uh, Mr. Finberg, let's go back to uh, Downey Elementary, where you will be in uh, the city of Harrisburg School District today. Um, Now, I assume that uh, the host Messiah College has a lot to do with choosing the school and the students that you're working with but how is that done how are they how do they choose which school or which locations that uh, you're going to visit
3: (laughs) The, the reason I'm here in Harrisburg is as you said Messiah College is hosting this convening on an initiative called together for tomorrow and It started out as a pilot in just six sites around the country that has grown to now uh, 39 sites in 33 states, including here in Pennsylvania. And we have more than 200 vistas around the country that are working in some of the lowest performing schools. So, again, we don't know that necessarily from Washington, D.C., But in finding a local partner, they've identified the school or schools where the VISTA can make the most difference. And so Messiah was able to, through its relationships, figure that out here and identify which schools made the most sense to work in and had the support of their principal and administrators uh, that makes a really big difference in how... How the work gets done. So again that's not something that we're we're picking from DC uh, but that rather that's something that happens on the local level and is determined by the, the needs in the local community.
0: Almost every discussion of education, money is, is part of that discussion. Uh, now with AmeriCorps Vista, you're not being paid for this. This is something that uh, is, is a volunteer effort, correct?
3: Uh, It it is a volunteer effort, and in exchange for a full-time year of service, you get a living allowance. So it's like a a stipend. It's not a salary or or otherwise. So that's based at the the poverty level of where you're serving. And as well, there is an educational award or a scholarship at the end. Uh, This was something that former Senator Harris Wofford was very involved in helping make make possible. And so at the end of that year of service, a Vista is eligible for this scholarship for almost $6,000 to pay back student loans or to go to school could be community college or technical college or four year college, um, as well as some health coverage and, and other benefits as well. But that's what folks get in exchange for, a full year of, of service.
0: Are we talking about mostly young people?
3: Mostly, but not exclusively. Yesterday uh, in Baltimore, I met Tom, who is a retired journalist, who was doing his VISTA year in his hometown, and very excited about it. So uh, we, there is no age limit with 18 and over, and we see a, a bunch of folks just out of school saying, I want to give back, and how can I help? as well as uh, met a couple yesterday who were out of prison and looking for a way to give back instead of taking. And this was a terrific way to to start that process. So Richard and Angie had uh, realized that this was a terrific opportunity for them as they were trying to get back on their feet after uh, serving time.
0: You know, when you bring that up, and I hate to even bring this up, but uh, in today's world, we have to think about it. Uh, When someone has been incarcerated, do you do background checks? Well, really, even even if they haven't been incarcerated, but when they're working with children today, uh, what kind of background checks and uh, security do you do?
3: Good question. And absolutely, we have a criminal history check where we're checking through fingerprints and with the FBI database to make sure that Uh, We're not putting anyone in danger. Mm.
0: You said earlier about tutoring uh, some of these students, but you also mentor. And Mm -hmm. there's a difference between tutoring and mentoring. How do you mentor students that are in some of these struggling school districts?
3: One of the great things about our model is finding partners who have subject matter expertise. So VISTA does a lot of different work around addressing poverty. Could be housing, could be education, could be hunger and food security, just a, a wide variety. So in answer to your question, one of the things we do is partner with a uh, mentor, the National Partnership on Mentoring. And they have the data and the research on exactly the distinction you're making and what makes a quality mentor and so they're able to provide that understanding and that additional training for the VISTA so that they're they're able to make the, the maximum difference uh, we we don't have that in every every subject matter and area so what we do is make sure that our partnerships are, are driven by folks who know what they're doing, know what they're talking about, and can help achieve the goals that they they say they're going to.
0: Mentoring is so important, not just for uh, students who are growing up or kids who are growing up in low-income areas, but for any young person, Uh, and maybe it doesn't even have to be a young person of any age. Uh, A mentorship is something that uh, is is just very important that uh, you can learn from, that uh, you can you know hear experiences and and learn from those experiences this would seem to be something that would be especially important though in uh, a situation where you have a student coming from uh, a family a, a low-income family absolutely
3: and you were you were right all of the the data show that having someone outside of your family take an interest in you, care for you, offer that counsel and advice uh, has real impact where you're 75% less likely to get engaged in uh, illegal drug activity or more likely to, to come to school. And we've, we've seen some of the, um, the reports that really show that this kind of program, this Together for Tomorrow program has made a significant difference so just just one study and evaluation on that was done down in Orlando Florida uh, the United Way there hosts their Together for Tomorrow program and showed uh, how much of a difference it made so for example of the students who were mentored 67% two-thirds of them achieved higher scores academically compared to this uh, control group of similar students, same demographic, who were eligible to be mentored but who didn't have a mentor. And same results on the the, uh, elementary school side. And then 83% of those students who had a mentor had better attendance records than the group who didn't. That's just a
0: big deal. You're going to be at Downey Elementary School in Harrisburg today. Uh, is there any difference in reaching out to these kids at a younger age than, say, middle school or high school?
3: It's, it's one thing that we see all along the continuum. So the, the recognition that needing to start in, before kindergarten to make sure kids arrive ready to learn Uh, but one of the things that again the, the data have shown is that if you're on grade level for your reading by third grade you're on a good track if you get to third grade and you're already behind it's a lot more difficult to catch up so you're right starting even earlier and again we we see a number of studies that have shown that in third grade is is a key. So that's where a lot of uh, AmeriCorps effort, our, our sister program doing more direct service is engaged and and other programs trying to make sure that pre-middle school already you're in a better place.
0: You're in a unique... Then, Go ahead, finish your well, And
3: then once you're in middle school and, and high school, it's those opportunities, whether it's around... STEM or technology that uh, gets you ready for whatever's
0: next. You're in a unique position to see what schools are doing across the country. Uh, And I have a couple questions along those lines, but have you seen an improvement in our schools? Are we staying the same or are we worse?
3: Actually, I'm proud to say and happy to say that we're doing a little better it's not universal but now over the last few years we've seen an increase in the high school graduation rate to it's now about 82 percent which is one of the highest in history we need to keep keep moving that up and that's the goal but it's pretty terrific to see that there is real improvement Uh, we know where schools are struggling and having trouble and one of the things that americorps has done over the past few years is trying to get more and more of of our folks into those schools to to make a difference and again we're starting to see that not across the board every single location but uh, i am pleased to say that we are seeing those those kinds of improvements
0: well the 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 dropout rate going down is uh, a, a real key i'm curious Families that you work with, and you cannot make a universal statement. Obviously, uh, you said earlier that most families want their children to get good education. Do you find that there are p- parents out there, families that that most of them, anyway, the, the great majority of them, say we know that one of the best ways, or one of the only ways, in fact, to get out of poverty is to get a good education.
3: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yesterday uh, on March 31st was Cesar Chavez Day. It was his birthday. The great civil rights activist who fought for farm workers and justice, who grew up in the fields, providing the food that we get to eat on our tables uh, is a great testament to, to that. Two of his granddaughters are, are friends of mine, uh, one of whom works in the White House. And it's because of education for that vulnerable group of of folks as well as others from rural areas or inner cities where education really has made a difference. And it's exciting to see when that's the case. Again, as you said, it's it's not universal. You can't say it for every single one, but uh, it's very, very exciting to see where those investments in people in the dignity of people have made a difference and they're able to then provide for their family they're able to then provide a better future and opportunity
0: but do they have hope again we know we can't make a blanket statement but is there hope
3: i have seen hope in some of the most unlikely places and to be able to to see that in some of the poorest locations of our country, where on the Pine Ridge Reservation, second poorest place in our whole country, the Oglala Lakota Sioux Tribe in South Dakota, they have a a young man who's set up an organization that's doing amazing things and building some of the first new houses on the reservation in generations. Uh, So there's hope even in places like that there's there's light that breaks through and the darkness can't hold back so again it's not universal there's there's still plenty of challenges but I am I am encouraged because there is hope in some of the unlikeliest places
0: You know, I I can't help but think of uh, what we see on the news and hear in the news every day, uh, the presidential race right now. And I'm not going to bring politics into this, but one of the things that we do hear every single day from candidates, and I know that this is politics, is that things are bad and that uh, the United States is falling behind. I wonder if it's difficult to have hope, to have optimism for the future when that message is so widespread. it does get
3: challenging uh the reality of not being able to to break through some of that conversation to share some of the terrific data that point to good things so to have oh more than 71 months of private sector job growth in a row one of the best economic trends in history and not have that reported or have the the deficit reduced by a significant amount and, you know, people still saying that the sky is falling or the fact that there are uh, more than 90% of people who now have health insurance at the lowest rate of uninsured in our history, that's a terrific sign of hope and movement in positive direction. But you're right, that, that has difficulty breaking through and... Is one of the things that President Obama keeps trying, but uh, it gets clouded by by other strains in the conversation.
0: Your background actually is in hunger and feeding the hungry. Have we made? Uh... Again, you, you mentioned uh, the administration. You've worked in Washington. You worked for a, a congressman. You worked for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Uh, let's talk a little bit about hunger, and maybe I'm getting off track a little bit, but uh, since I have you here, I want to be able to, to, to find out where we are right there. Are we making progress in feeding the hungry?
3: We are, and it's a an, another testament to the power of partnerships. So it's the federal government, through the U.S. Department of Agriculture that I used to work with, uh, working in conjunction with the state. So I just had coffee with a friend who's now here at the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture. Uh, but then also working with nonprofit organizations, faith-based organizations, and our federal nutrition assistance programs are making a difference. So. I'm thrilled to be able to say in the richest country in the world, there is no starvation. Nobody is starving to death. There is hunger. There is folks who are threatened by not knowing where the next meal is coming from. And through the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, what used to be food stamps, we were able to make sure, even in the depths of the Great Recession, that folks at least had something to help. It's not always enough, and that's where our private sector and charities, the food bank system, come in to try and help. Uh, One of the great things that I've been privileged to work on is trying to make sure that hungry kids have access to meals during the summer and out-of-school time. And so we've seen a marked increase in the number of meals that we're able to serve over the summer months when school is out and they're not going to a cafeteria to get school lunch. And all of that is a result of partnerships, partnerships with food banks and other organizations that provide meals where kids are over the summer, whether that's a a sports and recreation program or an arts and crafts or a, a computer course or camp, those programs benefit from the summer meals program that USDA offers in partnership and conjunction with the state of Pennsylvania and with local partners who help make it happen. And one of the great things is uh, VISTAs are involved in that. So I've been able to continue my work in trying to make sure hungry people are fed.
0: Mr. Finberg, we're almost out of time, and I want to thank you very much for uh, coming on the program and and coming to Harrisburg today. Uh, For those out there who may be interested in working with AmeriCorps VISTA, how can they do that? They should go
3: to nationalservice.gov. Nationalservice.gov is our website that uh, provides information about AmeriCorps VISTA, as well as our other sister programs in AmeriCorps and Senior Corps. We do a a lot with folks uh, 55 and older who can volunteer some of their time. So it's a great way of getting a look. So there are two ways. One is if you're interested yourself, so you can go to nationalservice.gov and find out how to apply to become an AmeriCorps member, an AmeriCorps VISTA, or a Senior Corps member, but you can also explore becoming a sponsor.